Well, we have a love-hate relationship with judgment, don't we? We love to judge, but we almost always hate being judged by others. We're always judging. We judge politics, pandemics, and people. We've already made a litany of judgments, even today, even about the service and the people around us. Ironic that as we're making all these judgments all the time, we are most uncomfortable, usually, with being judged ourselves. You could say that we fear judgment. We fear judgment because we don't like feeling exposed. Judgment makes us feel vulnerable. So how do we, how do we respond to that fear of judgment that we all face? Well, we often tell the people that we often rightly perceive as judging us, judge not, lest you be judged. You know, Matthew 7, or Tupac, only God can judge me. Or like the t-shirt that I saw someone wearing in Colonel Summers Park a while back, leave the judge into Jesus. But do we assume, or why do we assume that being judged by God is a better option than being judged by a fellow human being. Listen now as I read from Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. You can find it in your, in your program, Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. What can we expect from God's judgment? For if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. Anyone who disregarded the law of Moses died without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who is trampled on the Son of God, who is regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know the one who has said, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Are we sure we want only God to judge us? Are we sure we want to leave the judging to Jesus? Maybe it would be better to have a little judgment from here on earth than to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, welcome to Hinson, friends, where in God's providence, we have gathered here outside in our neighborhood on a beautiful day to consider God's judgment. I, I remember we were out here last year. Some of you will remember. I, I think I began one sermon by singing from Lion King. Uh, an another sermon started raining shortly after. I started preaching, and here we are today in God's providence. Again, this was the Holy Spirit's plan to consider God's judgment. If you're new to Hinson, you found yourself near, uh, here uh, as we near the end of this little sermon series that I'm doing in the book of Hebrews, particularly on the warning passages of Hebrews. The argument, I think, of the book of Hebrews as a whole is don't stop believing or don't let go of Jesus. And the five warning passages that are in Hebrews all basically say the same thing. 
If you abandon Jesus, you're in trouble. So don't let go of Jesus. So here in Hebrews 10, the passage I just read, we have what I think is the most intense and terrifying of the warnings uh, in, in Hebrews. And this is what I think Hebrews 10, 26 through 31 is saying to us today. The fear of judgment keeps us in Christ. The fear of judgment keeps us in Christ. That's what we're going to explore this morning. The fear of judgment keeps us in Christ. And this, that idea leads to two pretty simple questions. One, are you afraid of judgment? Are you afraid of judgment? And second, are you secure in Christ? Second, are you secure in Christ? So first, are you afraid of judgment? Look with me again at Hebrews 10, 26 and 27. What can we expect from God's judgment? Well, verse 27 tells us. It's terrifying. A terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. You know, if that doesn't make us uncomfortable enough, the text continues. Uh, look at verses 28 and 29. Anyone who disregarded the law of Moses died without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. And then next, it's like, well, you think that was bad. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, who is regarded as profane the blood of the covenant, by which he was sanctified and who has insulted the spirit of grace? There, there's a comparison in these verses that's saying, you think that the judgments in the Old Testament were intense and terrifying? Well, you haven't seen anything yet. But as we're stumbling over that idea, as we're grappling with this idea of, of God's judgment, the text just presses on. Hebrews 10.29 raises the stakes and says, what do you think will happen if you trample God's son? If you insult his spirit and profane Christ's blood? It's going to be worse than what we saw in the Old Testament. And then the Old Testament quotations in Deuteronomy that uh, Mark read from, for us earlier underline the main takeaway. I'll read it again. For we know the one who has said... It's God. Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. So this is what we should expect if we walk away from Christ. Judgment. It's terrifying. Friends, is this how you think of God? You know, I'm often challenged that the God of the Bible is different than the God of my own logic, reason, and cultural sensibilities. You know, I, I want a God that makes sense to the inclusive and affirming nature of our age. I want a God that doesn't seem harsh. I want a God who is like a grandfather or even better, a grandmother. Uh, who just accepts me for who I am and is just happy to see me, happy to love me no matter how long it's been since I've come and visited or despite any decisions that I've made. We don't want a God who seems judgmental, do we? No one likes, no one likes it when you go visit a grandparent or an aunt and uncle and the first thing they say to you is, how come it's been so long since you've come and visited me? And yet... I think this passage and all of scripture tells us that it's safer to believe in the God who is than the God who makes sense to us at first glance. 
Because let's be honest, sometimes what makes sense to us, sometimes our cultural sensibilities are just wrong, right? Uh, I know that's hard to admit, but if humanity's sensibilities were so well-formed, maybe our world wouldn't be the way that it is today. Furthermore, if God is not a God of judgment, there is no justice and there is no peace. It would be a terrible world if God would not one day make all things right. A world where there's no standards is a world without love. You know, we, we all get this. We are all longing for justice, and it takes different forms. Um, but when true justice shows up in Scripture, it makes us uncomfortable because of how intense it can be, how terrifying it can be. But let's think of it this way. I think so often we think of, of judgment in very impersonal terms. Kind of think of it up there. It just terrifies us, and we like to keep our distance. But what to you today, consider for yourself, what is most good, beautiful? Maybe it's your children or your partner or spouse. Maybe it's your work, your business. Maybe it's another family member or a pet. Now imagine giving that which you love most uh, to someone else. And then imagine the recipient of that gift, of what you value most, trampling on it, destroying it, destroying him or her. Listen to this parable that Jesus told in the Gospels. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. He leased it to tenant farmers and went away. When the time came to harvest fruit, he sent his servants to the farmers to collect his fruit. The farmers took his servants, beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first group, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenant farmers saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those farmers? True justice demands judgment. And God will not let injustice go unpunished. If he were to sweep it under the rug, pretend like it's no big deal, everybody makes mistakes, he would cease to be God. He would cease to be good. To not do anything about the abuse of the person that you love most would be evil. And evil must be punished. And there's no nothing that's more evil than rejecting God's son. I wonder if you believe this today. You know, if you're not a follower of Jesus, uh, we're not pointing fingers and trying to make you feel bad about yourself this morning. Uh, no, actually, we're so glad that you're here. And the audience of this book of Hebrews and the sermon is aimed at Christians. Notice it's in, in verse 30 in the text that I read earlier that God says that he's going to judge his people. 
So if you're not a follower of Jesus, we're just so glad that you're here and uh, we're glad that you're listening. But we would like to share with you just a little bit about the kind of the crux, the summary of what Christians believe in light of this passage. What do we believe about God's judgment? Is it terrifying? Well, yes, it is. God's word says it is clearly. Does it jive with our modern sensibilities? Does it kind of fit the PR message maybe that we're trying to put out there? No, it, it doesn't really work. Uh, it doesn't jive with our modern culture, but it is the answer to our longings for true justice. Listen to how God's judgment brings true justice and what we summarize as the gospel, the good news. Seemingly, the greatest injustice in all of history was the death of the innocent and righteous Son of God. But his sacrifice accomplished the righteousness of God. It was the plan of the Father to send his Son to be the sacrifice that we need so that we might have forgiveness, so that we might be pardoned, so that we might have hope of eternal life. So it's at the cross of Christ that we see the justice of God and God's judgment most clearly. So whether you're a follower of Christ or not, how are you going to respond to the uncomfortable reality of God's judgment on sinners? Are you afraid? You should be but it's a healthy fear that causes us to grasp a hold of the only safety that we have in this life and in the next. We hold fast to the cross, the justice and the righteousness of God. So for all of us, look to the cross, cling to the cross. It was a terrifying thing for the son of God to fall into the hands of the father because of the weight of our sin that he bore. And it's a terrifying thing to reject the only way that we are forgiven. The only way that we can have hope as we look to facing God one day, apart from Jesus Christ as our advocate, Savior and Lord, we are doomed. So apart from Jesus, expect terrifying judgment. But with Jesus, we gain what we need most forgiveness of sins, hope of eternal life. Is that what you think you need most today? You know, if you are in Christ, if you love the Lord Jesus Christ, God's judgment on you is this. Hear me now. You are forgiven. You are cleansed and you belong to him. So leave the judge into Jesus. Yes, one day, but before he comes to judge, worship him as the one who is judged in your place. Hold fast to him as you consider that you were already judged in Christ. And let the fear of judgment lead you to hold on to Christ who is judged in your place. And that brings us to our second point. Are you secure in Christ? Are you secure in Christ? You know, the book of Hebrews was originally written to Jewish Christians in the first century. Uh, and before these Jews were Christians, I assume they were good people, right? I assume that they were moral, kind, the kind of people that you want as your neighbors. But then they became Christians. And to be a Christian at that time, and increasingly so in our time, it's kind of crazy. 
You know, these, these uh, Christians, this church, began to stick out like a sore thumb. At the time of this writing, these Jewish Christians were tired of being judged by society. Uh, they wanted to fit in again. I mean, people had a category for Judaism. It had been around for thousands of years. It was a religion that was protected by the empire. But following this guy who told his disciples to eat his flesh and drink his blood, who was crucified, and then whose disciples are saying, uh, rose again, well, needless to say, these Christians were, were growing weary of their new identity in Christ, of being thought of as a little strange. Who likes to be judged by your neighbors, by your coworkers, by your family, when you just want to, at the end of the day, just kind of want to get along, just want to be accepted? If you read down later in Hebrews 10, you'll see that these Christians were not just being kind of judged in the hearts and the minds of, the, of their neighbors and friends, but they were actually being taunted, afflicted. Some were put in prison and had their property confiscated all because of their allegiance to Christ. So how are they going to respond? How are they going to respond to, to being judged, to being afflicted? Well, here's what they're tempted to do. Just kind of move Jesus to the periphery right? Just, just kind of move him to the outside. Don't empathize him a lot. Uh, and slowly kind of just let go of him and revert back to kind of what we've known for so long, Judaism, uh, the traditions, the sights, the smells, the bells. Uh, we, and we understand that. We get that. We understand at least the part of de-emphasizing Jesus today. I wonder if you feel that uh, in whatever context you find yourself in the world just to kind of move Jesus to the side. Let's focus on what we have in common with our neighbors and friends who don't know the Lord. You know, if you pretend that your faith isn't that important to you when you talk to your family and friends, I think be careful that your game of pretend doesn't become reality. And before we know it, uh, Jesus isn't all that important to us. He's not the center of our lives. You know, so often I know for myself when I'm trying to relate to people, I don't want to appear like the Christian stereotype. I don't want to seem like Angela from The Office or uh, the evangelical preacher, fire and brimstone preaching. But in trying to act not like the Christian stereotype, we must be careful. Uh, maybe soon we're not acting like Christians altogether and we're just like the world. We need to accept that we're different, friends. We are different. The world will judge us. Jesus promised us that. It, the, Jesus said that we're going to be treated no differently than he was treated. And we know how he was treated. Uh, but all too often, I think we, we act like Jesus just needed a better PR manager. And we're happy to step into that role. What isn't at the center can easily drift to the edge and then fall off the map altogether. And so Hebrews 10, 26 through 31 comes to us like a cold bucket of water. Maybe that would feel good to some of us right now. But it shocks us. It wakes us up and it says, in light of God's coming judgment, don't let go of Jesus. Look with me at verse 26. For if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. What's the knowledge of the truth? I think it's the knowledge about Jesus. Um, 
the, the knowledge of the truth is actually a regular expression in the book of Hebrews and in the pastoral, epis, or the pastoral epistles for conversion, uh, being made new in Christ. The, the listeners who Hebrews is addressing receive the knowledge of the truth when they put their trust in Christ and God's Son. And yet, to deliberately go on sinning is to let go of Jesus and instead go your own way, live life on your own terms. Deliberately going on sinning is the opposite of what we're going to see in Hebrews 11 of pressing on in faith. It's turning your back on Jesus and seeking to justify yourself. For these Jewish Christians, again, don't read deliberately go on sinning as like deliberately going on like cussing or lying or stealing or fornicating or something like that. Those might all be the consequences of what our author is talking about, that the, that could be some of the fruit. Uh, but what our author is getting at, at is that to deliberately go on sinning is to let go of Jesus altogether. It's moving Jesus from the center to the periphery, and then he falls off the map because we're pursuing something else. Let me illustrate this. Imagine that you're applying for a job for a company that you desperately want. This is like your dream job. You, you really want to work for this company. And you have, a, you have someone on the inside. You have a good friend who is on the inside who has a voice with the CEO. And your friend says, I'm going to talk to the CEO on your behalf. And I'm going to get you an interview with her. And then as you're about, so you get that interview. And as you're about to go into that interview, you say to your friend who's, who's made all this happen, you say, you know, actually, I don't really need you anymore. Um, I've got this on my own. I would have gotten here without you. Um, and you, you, you know, I guess you've been a good friend and all, but I've gotten to this point on my own and, uh, see you later. Would that be a wise thing to do? You know, you're going to have a momentary interview there with the CEO, but who's going to have an ongoing voice with the boss? I share that illustration to set the context a little bit of what's happening in Hebrews. The book of Hebrews has just demonstrated that Jesus serves as the church's great high priest. He's our man on the inside in heaven. He vouches for us. He's our advocate, ongoing. Apart from him, we got no leg to stand on. And so to try to go before the holy tribunal of God's judgment without Christ, that's just a bad choice. It's a poor decision, to say the least. And to even suggest that Christ the Son of God who suffered and died as your sacrifice before God isn't needed anymore, is to reject him. What does verse 29 say? How much worse punishment do you think will, deserve, will one deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, who is regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and who has insulted the spirit of grace? Note, notice how personal those descriptions are. That kind of trifold description of what it means to reject God and his son. Uh, the, these are very personal. It's to trample the son of God himself. It's to take the blood, his precious blood, that, that he poured out to forgive us. And it's to regard it as, remember, these are Jewish Christians, as unclean, profane, disgusting, unnecessary. It's to insult the very spirit of grace who made us new to insult the Holy Spirit himself who taught us the knowledge of the truth, who implanted the knowledge of the truth in us. 
So friends, to treat Jesus as optional, to move on from him, to go on in deliberate and ongoing sin is to personally reject God himself. It's personal to the one who made you as you seek to live your life on your own, apart from looking to Christ as your advocate. You know, the mere thought of falling into the sin or rejecting forever should cause us to wake up a little bit this morning, to have some desperation and determination. We must, every day, respond to our great high priest. We must hear the word of the Son, and embrace his salvation rather than drifting from it. Christ, as we considered last week, is our anchor in the choppy sea of anxiety, fear, and confusion. So with a proper fear, we cling to him and his salvation. What does that look like? What does it look like to cling to Christ? To not reject him, but instead to embrace him. Well, let's conclude by just considering a couple things. Consider first the security of God's promise. Consider first the security of God's promise. God promised in the new covenant that all people, without distinction, would know him from the greatest to the least. He promised to forgive our iniquity and never again remember our sin. He promised to put his teaching, the knowledge of the truth within us and write it on our hearts. He promised to be our God and that we would be his people. And he has done all these things in Jesus Christ. So let's hold fast to God's promises by remembering them together. That's actually why we gather today. Not to make us feel good about ourselves because, hey, I went to church today so I can check that off the box or check that box. Uh, we gather together to remind ourselves of God's promises that they are yes and amen in Jesus Christ and that we're not crazy. We're often crazy. The world's crazy, but his word is sure. He has kept every promise in Christ. He has given us a word about his son to hold on to us in the storm, something firm. But it's not just like an impersonal anchor. It's just not like a, an, a, a rock that's kind of you know distant. But second, let's consider the security that we know in Christ because of the blood of Christ. Do you often consider that there's power in the blood and how, what his blood does for us as his church? You know, we often forget that there's life in the blood and how Christ's blood purifies us. We, we heard earlier in Hebrews that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. There's no hope. You know, we tend to forget by the way we live our lives that there is nothing else left for us to do because of Christ's blood. We don't need to accumulate good works to prove ourselves to God. We don't need to, uh, we, we just need to be covered in the blood of Jesus. We need to wear his righteous robes. We need to hold fast to the cross. Friends, Today we've considered that judgment leads us to Jesus. Judgment leads us to Jesus. God's judgment will be terrifying, but Jesus endured that terror for all who turn from their obsession with self. Jesus is our safety from God's judgment. 
So let's quit judging others in order to justify ourselves. Let's turn from our obsession with performance, even religion, politics, sports, even at times theology and our ministry, and let's make sure that first and foremost, we are clinging to Christ alone. Cling to the one who holds on to you today. And why should we cling to him? He does not only make us secure. His blood doesn't only forgive us of our sins. But he is altogether wonderful. He is beautiful. He is full of love to those who find their hope in him. I've quoted it many times before, but listen to this Scottish preacher, Robert Murray McShane, who wrote to a friend who was struggling with this advice. This is what he said. Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. So church, what are you going to do about Jesus? Friend joining us today, what are you going to do about Jesus? You know, the Son of God holds out his pierced hands and welcomes all who would come and find refuge, find safety from God's terrifying judgment in Christ. This is the hope alone of forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Even if you've come to Christ many times before, bury yourself in him. Bury yourself in his arms and find yourself raised with him in eternal life, in resurrection life. As Michael Reeves said in his book, Rejoicing in Christ, life is found in Jesus Christ. He is the author and the source of it. And if we know him rightly, we will find nothing so desirable, so delightful as him. This is the secret to not letting go of Jesus. You must love him. You must know his love for you at the cross. We must bask in the freedom of his forgiveness of us, and we must find him altogether delightful. So what are you waiting for? Hear his word call you to himself even now. Know his love for you in the cross, and consider the fury of fiery judgment if we do not find our hope in him alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that so often you are small in our minds and in our hearts. We confess that we turn to other things for security, for hope, or do we desperately try to take control of our lives and we look at everything swirling around us 
uh, Lord, we pray that in the storm that you would be our anchor, that you would be our rock. Almighty God, we know that you are sovereign, that you are good, that you are holy, and that you are just. Help us to look to you, not as an impersonal God who loves to smite sinners, but as the God who demonstrated your righteousness, your justice, by sending your beloved son for us. So Lord, help us to live lives of humility, of repentance and faith, of great love for you and your body, the church. Help us to give ourselves in love to you and to one another. Lord, you alone can do this. On our own, we keep on looking to ourselves. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come. Have your way with us. We pray that we would behold you by faith. Behold you seated on your throne. And behold the Son of God who continues to make intercession for us as our great high priest. And so we pray all these things with confidence. Not mere wishful thinking, but certainty. Uh, Lord, that you reign and we will praise you forever. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.